Um, it is Mother's Day, um, and I know that is a day of rejoicing uh, and where we want to say thank you to our moms. I, I know for some it's also a day of sadness because you can't be with your children, uh, or maybe it is a day of sadness because of some painful things, um, maybe between you and your mom, or maybe because you wanted to be a mom and, and that simply didn't happen for you. And so whatever your feelings are about this day, let's take a moment and, and let's pray for our moms, give thanks uh, as appropriate, and then ask God to bless the moms. Let, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for the women who embraced the high calling of motherhood, who sacrificed and served their children. And Father, we know that no mom is perfect, none of us are. But I thank you for all the moms who tried and, and did their best. And I pray every mom would have the strength as they continue to love and parent their kids. They would have the strength to keep um, imparting wisdom and grace. Uh, whether their kids are preschoolers or adults, God, you know that everybody still needs a mom. And so, Father, please bless all mothers. Thank you for our mothers. Help us to honor them. Heal hurts that have happened in families and hurts that may even be there today so that there would be healing and so that there would be grace. I ask all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Molly grew up in northwest Oklahoma. She grew up in a family where they were always in church, where they went every time the doors were open. Uh, that was Sunday morning in the old days, Sunday night as well, Wednesday night. Uh, there for vacation, Bible school. She participated in the youth group. And when she was 14 years old, she went to youth camp. And one night during youth camp, uh, whoever was preaching talked about serving God with your life and then made the comment about uh, some of you are called to vocational ministry. You're called to actually serve the Lord. Maybe as a missionary, maybe as a pastor, maybe to work in a church. And something stirred deep within inside Molly's heart. And that night, she made the commitment that she would serve God in a vocational ministry. And when she looked back at that event, Molly said, at church, we sang a hymn, wherever he leads, I'll go. And I thought that meant girls too. So we're in a series called The Unlikely. It is about how God uses unlikely people to do extraordinary things to do his will. And we're following uh, the book of Judges, talking about different leaders that God uses, and they are all unlikely. And the book of Judges, as I have shared with you, follows a pattern where God's people turn away from him, and so God will send an oppressor the oppressor will oppress God's people for sometimes 15, 18, 20 years. And then finally the people get enough and they, they cry out to God for deliverance and God delivers them, usually by raising up a leader who leads them to a military victory. So that is the pattern in the book of Judges. And, and if you have a Bible, open it to Judges chapter four and we're gonna see that familiar pattern lay out again. Uh, beginning in verse 1, again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. 
now that Ehud was dead. We talked about Ehud last, last week. And the Lord sold them into the hands of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. Sisera, the commander of his army, was based in Harosheth Hagoyim, because he had 900 chariots fitted with iron and had cruelly oppressed the Israelites for 20 years, they cried to the Lord for help. So you get the picture, it's very familiar. The Israelites once again have disobeyed the first commandment. They're worshiping a God other than their God. And so God gives them into the hand of an evil king, Jabin, king of the Canaanites, and into the hand of his commanding general, a man named Sisera, they have technological military superiority because they have chariots made of iron. The Israelites don't have that. And we've read this enough that we know it takes time, but finally the Israelites will cry out for help and God will send a deliverer who will lead them into battle and once again the people will turn toward God. Except that's not what happens. Not this time. Instead, in verse 4, we're told, Now Deborah, a prophet, the wife of Lapidoth, was leading Israel at that time. She held court under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim, and the Israelites went up to her to have their disputes decided. No warrior this time. Instead, a woman. So there's four things we find out about Deborah in these few verses. The first is, she is a woman. And you're saying, thank you, Captain Obvious, right? Why is that so significant? Remember, this is a time of patriarchy. The men are the only ones who have legal standing. Men are the only ones who can buy and sell property. Men have control over their families and over their wives. And so the fact that you have Deborah, a woman, mentioned at all is remarkable. And here's the second thing we learn about Deborah. She is a prophet. Now the word prophet means to call or to proclaim. It comes from a Hebrew root which means to bubble up. She has so much God in her, it bubbles up. And so when people need to know what God thinks, who do they go to? They go to Deborah. I have heard people say that women cannot have the gift of prophecy. And when I hear people say that, I always want to tell them about a wonderful older woman who was in, at Alice Drive uh, when I first came as pastor 28 years ago, and her name was Miss Eileen Brumfield. Now, Miss Brumfield was a widow, but she was a woman of amazing faith. And after I had been here for a while, God blessed our church incredibly, and we began to grow, and new people were coming to know Jesus. It was remarkable. And I remember Miss Brumfield coming up to me after the 8.30 service one day and saying, Pastor, since this church began in 1956, I have prayed for this church to grow. And God promised me it would, and I would live to see it. Do you think Miss Brumfield had the gift of prophecy? Now, we're also told, thirdly, that Deborah is the wife of Lapidoth. Now, this is important for what it says about her. That her marriage does not inhibit her 
from following God's call. Remember, in those days, often a woman was considered to be the property of her husband. Now, I want every man here who is accompanied by his wife to turn to his wife right now and say, you are my property. I got a couple of guys saying, not on your life, preacher. No way. You know what? And I think you're probably pretty smart. No. I I was um, interviewing with this church in Kentucky back when I was in school. And there was a man on the the pastor search committee named E.C. Carruthers. And um, the the committee was favorably impressed. And so I had to go and preach a, a trial sermon or an introductory sermon to the church. And they had a reception before that Sunday morning worship service. And people were coming by and introducing themselves. And a lady came by and introduced herself as Nancy Carruthers. And I said, oh, you must belong to EC. And she raised herself to her full height and said, young man, I do not belong to anyone. The vote that day was 99 to (laughs) 1. Yeah. Things to learn. What did it mean for Deborah to be a wife? Well, for her, it meant she was able to do that, whatever that meant, but she was also able to follow God. And give Lapidoth credit, he never treated his wife as property. He never prevented her or stood in the way of his wife serving the Lord. Now, here's the fourth thing we learned. Deborah was a leader. Now, the word there is literally judge, and we're told what she did, that she would sit under a palm tree and people would bring her legal cases, legal decisions, tough ones, to resolve because she was seen as a woman of incredible wisdom and a woman who had a connection with God. But it also meant that the Israelites were wise enough to say, even though this person is a woman and doesn't fit the mold of who God has sent in the past, We still recognize she has a special connection with God and we trust her because of her connection with God more than we would trust a man simply because he's a man. Pause and let this truth sink in. God chooses and uses who he wants. And God is not really concerned if it fits in our box or not. Deborah is so respected, she can call for another leader to come, and that leader will obey. So verse six, she sent for Barak, son of Abinoam from Kadesh in Naphtali, and said to him, The Lord, the God of Israel, commands you, go take with you 10,000 men of Naphtali and Zebulon and lead them up to Mount Tabor. I will lead Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army, with his chariots and his troops to the Kishon River and give him into your hands. Barak is apparently someone who has some military background. And in those days, Israel has no standing army And so they need someone to call 
people to come to battle, for men to stop their farming and stop their trades and go out and form a militia. And so what happens is, is Deborah sends for Barak and Barak responds. And she even tells Barak the strategy. Now you take these men and you go up on Mount Tabor. This is what God is saying. And, and up there you'll have the high ground and God is going to be at work and, and the battle is going to happen and they're going to come to you and you're going to beat them. Now Barak's response to this is amazing. Verse 8. Barak said to her, if you go with me, I will go. But if you don't go with me, I won't go. Certainly, I will go with you, said Deborah. But because of the course you are taking, the honor will not be yours, for the Lord will deliver Sisera into the hands of a woman. So Deborah went with Barak to Kadesh. There Barak summoned Zebulun and Naphtali. Let me pause. Zebulun and Naphtali are two tribes of Israel. So from these two tribes, he summons 10,000 men, and they go up under his command, and Deborah also went up with him. Now to our ears, this sounds like the smart move, that Barak is doing a smart thing, right? Here's a woman who has exceptional spiritual gifting, and Barak says, look, if this is God's command, I want you to go with me. But in Barak's time, this is unheard of. First of all, for a woman to issue a call to a man to come and get a word from the Lord, that never happened. For a woman to say, this is God's will for your life, that's unheard of. And, and then for Barak to say, okay, I'll go, but I'm not going without you, I mean, Barak knows that people are going to call him a wimp, that he won't go to battle unless he's got a woman by his side. This is unprecedented. In fact, Deborah actually mildly rebukes him. Because of your course of action, the honor will go to a woman, not to you. And Barak is okay with that. In the Bible, there's all kinds of faith. Sometimes we, we, we pay attention to the stories where there's perfect faith. You remember Jesus met a, a centurion, a soldier, a Roman soldier, who said, I have a servant who's sick, and, and he needs healing. And, and Jesus says, okay, I'll come. And, and the soldier, the centurion, says, no, you, you don't even need to come. All you need to do is just speak the word, and I know it will happen. You remember what Jesus says? Not even in Israel have I seen such faith. Go, your servant is healed. That's perfect faith. That is perfect and complete trust. There's another kind of faith, and it is the kind of faith that needs a little help. It's the faith of Moses. He's out there in the desert, sees the burning bush. God says to him, I want you to go tell Pharaoh, let my people go. And Moses says, wow, send somebody else. And God says, no, you're the one, you go. Moses keeps resisting, resisting, and finally, Moses gets down. His excuses sound so lame. He gets down. He says, basically, Lord, I don't talk so good. And God says, go. I'm going to let Aaron go with you. He can do the talking. You tell him what I say. I, I think a lot of us have faith like Moses. And how many of us get hung up in our faith because it's not perfect? 
And we think we have to have this, this all put together picture of faith and that we can't actually walk with God or do his will until we get it absolutely right. Let me tell you about the best kind of faith to have. The best faith is the one that helps you take your next step toward Jesus. That's what matters. Take the next step. And if you need some help on the way, God will provide it. I think that's where Barak is. Okay, God, you're telling me to go into battle and I'll go, but can Deborah go with me, please? Don't you remember what Jesus said? If you have faith, just the size of a mustard seed. Just the size of a mustard seed. Hey, mountains can move. Mountains can move. So stop trying to be perfect in your faith and make progress in your faith. Take your next step. Now, the middle of chapter four describes the battle, and I'm not gonna read that whole chapter. Let me summarize it real quick, uh, that section of the chapter. So, so what happens is Barak takes his 10,000 men, he goes up on Mount Tabor, he takes the high ground, and Sisera comes out, and he's got these iron chariots. He has a technological advantage in warfare, except you don't have to be a general to realize chariots work best on flat, open ground. Where is Barak and the ten? And where are Barak and the ten thousand men? They're on the mountain. And Sisera is not a very good general, right? Because he's got the nine hundred chariots and he starts trying to drive them up the mountain. Mountains have rocks. Chariots, rocks, not a good match. And the guys are trying to swerve the chariots around the rocks. Meanwhile. The Israelites are up there with bows and arrows and spears and they're chucking them down there and the guys are getting slaughtered. Now it's not because Barak is such a great strategist. It's because God told them how to fight the battle. And God is at work in the battle. Twice in this part of chapter four, we're told that God is routing the enemy, which is a reminder that no matter how strong your army is, if God is against you, you lose. Now, we're going to pick the story up that really is what we're trying to deal with today in verse 17. Sisera, now that he's defeated, meanwhile, fled on foot. He's abandoned his chariot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite, because there was an alliance between Jabin, king of Hazor, and the family of Heber the Kenite. Okay, now we have two new characters. There is Heber. Heber is the husband of Jael. He is the leader of this clan. He is an Israelite, but he is a turncoat. He has switched sides. He's no longer loyal to God's people. He's no longer loyal to God. Instead, he has made an alliance with the evil King Jabin because he figures he's got 900 iron chariots. I want to be on a winner's side. And so they've made a treaty. Sisera, running away from the battle, comes to the, the encampment of Heber, and the first person he accounts, encounters is Jael, the wife of Heber. And Sisera thinks he's going to be safe there, because after all, there's a treaty. And so we see 
in verse 18, J.L. went out to meet Sisera and said to him, come my Lord, come right in, don't be afraid. So he entered her tent and she covered him with a blanket. I'm thirsty, he said, please give me up some water. And she opened a skin of milk and gave him a drink and covered him up. Stand in the doorway of the tent, he told her. If someone comes by and asks you, is anyone in there, say no. Isn't this sweet? I mean, it sounds so motherly and tender. I mean, you have, you have this exhausted general and he stumbles into camp and there's J.L. and she's going, oh, oh, come on in, come on in. Sounds a little bit like Hansel and Gretel, but come on in. Lay down. I'm going to cover you up with a blanket. I'm going to tuck you in. And sister, it sounds like a child, and just like your children. Just when you put them into bed, I'm thirsty. Can I have some water? Oh, honey, I got something better than water. And she pours him a skin of a milk. And just like some of you, you've got to have some milk and a cookie right before bedtime. And maybe not a cookie, but maybe a piece of pound cake. <laughs> toasted and buttered. And you, you just, you need that little sedative. This is so sweet. And I want you to see how sweet it is in verse 21. But J.L., Heber's wife, picked up a tent peg and a hammer and went quietly to him while he lay fast asleep, exhausted. She drove the peg through his temple into the ground and he died. <laughs> Duh. <laughs> that story got dark in a hurry. Especially for Sisera, the lights went out. I remember teaching this passage to a group of women in that very same church in Kentucky where I had been called as pastor. And these women all fancied themselves as Southern Bells. And after I got to this part of the story, one of the women fanning herself said, my, my dear pastor, I can't imagine a lady doing something like that. I said, you never met my Aunt Weta. You see, when, when my Aunt Weta was 75 years old, I went to see her one time and I knocked on her door and she hollered. She said, come on in, I got my hands full and I opened up the door and I went into her kitchen and there laid out on her kitchen counter was a carcass and she had raised a hatchet with blood streaming off of it and there were pieces of meat and fat hanging on that hatchet and I looked at the carcass and said, Aunt Weta, was it anybody I knew? And she laughed and she said, no, I caught a hog this morning in my trap. I'm just butchering it. And I remember after telling the women that story, that same woman said, oh my, what a woman. <laughs> now some of you may be put off by the fact that this actually is a brutal cold-blooded murder. But before you dismiss it, I want you to realize something. Jael is a woman of amazing courage. Remember, her husband has made an alliance with these people. He has turned his back on his own people, on his own God, and made an alliance with the enemy. But Jael decides her loyalty is not first to her husband, 
but to her God. Remember that first commandment? You will have no other gods before me, not even a husband. And she doesn't know. She doesn't know if her husband will come home and say, honey, what did you do today? And when he sees the general of his ally say, you must leave my tent, or, or Haber could have actually ordered his wife killed for violating the peace treaty, Jael has put herself at incredible risk. There's no safety in what she's done. But she's decided to follow her God, not her husband. When I was in college, I went to this seminar taught by this famous Bible teacher. There were 20,000 of us in a basketball arena. And I remember hearing this teacher say that if a husband tells his wife to sin, then she should obey her husband. And God would deal with the husband. And I was only 17 at the time, but I can remember thinking that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. Now, Jesus never encourages women to defy their husbands just for the point of defying their husbands. But Jesus also never said, follow your husband. He said, follow me. Now, here's what I observe, and I know this is true about myself. Most of us find security and safety in relationships. And that's why a lot of husbands will say, well, I just, I just want whatever you want, sweetheart. And that's why a lot, a lot of, of wives will say, honey, I will just do whatever you want to do. Because we don't want to rock the boat. We want safety and security. And, and that's a natural need, and we can understand that. I do think that's sometimes why it is hard for mothers, particularly when they have done their job so well and their children actually grow up to be pretty decent, healthy adults and and then they go off and they make decisions and sometimes they're not here for mother's day they're with their in-laws and and they're actually doing what you raised them to do but you put so much of your time and energy into the identity of mom it's it's hard but to really follow Jesus means that your ultimate identity and your ultimate security is in Jesus it's not in another person it's not in your identity it is not in, in expectations that culture may put on you. Your ultimate identity and security is in Jesus. That's why he said, seek first the kingdom of heaven and all these things will be added to you as well. That's what JL does. So to wrap up the story, verse 21, just then Barak came by in pursuit of Sisera J.L. went out to meet him. Come, she said, I will show you the man you're looking for. I've got him pinned down right here. <laughs> so he went in with her, and there lay Sisera with a tent peg through his temple dead. On that day, Jabin, king of Canaan, um, well, God, on that day, God subdued Jabin, king of Canaan, before the Israelites. And the hand of the Israelites pressed harder and harder against Jabin, king of Canaan, until they destroyed him. I want you to look at this. God uses a spiritual leader who's a woman, a general who doesn't care who gets the credit, 
and a woman who is handy with a hammer and a peg to do his will. What an unlikely trio. So what are we supposed to learn from all of this? Does this mean that we need to give every woman in our church a hammer and a tent peg and say, women, go do your duty? It disturbs me how many women I see nodding right now. <laughs> I see a couple of kids going, no. Now, here's what I think we're supposed to get from this story. Your gender does not determine your relationship with God. Your faith does. Your gender does not determine your relationship with God. Your faith does. So, there's so much to say here, but briefly, if you're a woman, you're responsible for your own spiritual journey, which means you cannot throw off and say, well, if my husband was more committed to Jesus, I, I, would, I, I, would, I guess I would be a better follower of Jesus. No, no, no. You're responsible for your own faith journey, which means you have to know Jesus. You have to have a personal experience with him. You need to know community have some faith support, you need to grow your character and you need to go and share. You're responsible and if God calls you to go and share in a place of leadership, then that means you need to be like Deborah. Now, in the American South and in evangelical circles, often it has been falsely taught or assumed by men that church and matters of faith is the wife's business. I've had men say to me, well, I leave church up to my wife. If your model of spiritual uh, leadership in your family, guys, involves saying, well, whatever my wife wants, you've got the wrong model. You are responsible for your journey with Christ. And you also need to exert influence, partner with your spouse, so that your family is a place of grace where your children know that they matter to God, where you're seeking to grow character, to be like Jesus together. You're a team. Be secure enough in your manhood to be dependent on God. Now it seems like these days we cannot hear the word gender without hearing the prefix trans before it. And, and so I, I could spend the whole afternoon talking about this, but I won't. But I, I do need to address this. I've talked with enough people who struggle with their gender identity to know the struggle is real. Struggle is real. Most of people who struggle with, with transgender issues say, I wish I was not this way. But here's what I think we as followers of Jesus have to get straight. No matter what gender struggles a person may have, they still need Jesus. No matter what gender struggles a person may have, they still need Jesus. Let me tell you the false message that churches tend to send. We tend to send a message, and some of you are very guilty of this on social media, you change and then you can come to church. And that's the wrong message. That is absolutely the wrong message. Because frankly, some of you haven't changed yet either. 
So that's why we say we have to be a place of grace, which means we're gonna welcome messy people, which is good news because everybody's messy. And our job is to introduce people to Jesus and it is Jesus' job to guide every person through whatever struggle they have. And we trust Jesus and his ability to guide better than we trust our ability to change people. So we need to be people of grace, hear people's story, and love them all the way to their next step with Jesus. And I know I'm preaching too long, but I'm gonna add this. From time to time when I speak like this, people will come up to me and say, but don't we have to tell them the truth? Don't we have to tell them the truth? Sure, we'll tell them what God's word says. But if you look at what God's word says, it says over and over that people met Jesus where they were, not where he wanted them to be. So let's be just like Jesus. I know that as we get into all of this, somewhere along the way, uh, some of you may have been told that God could not love you because of something in your past, maybe because of a, a fast past failure or temptation, or maybe because there's something that you still struggle with. I, I, in some really twisted places in the evangelical world, uh, it has actually been taught that God loves men more than they, he loves women. And I just want to tell you, that's a lie. That's an absolute lie. No matter who you are, no matter what your gender is, no matter what your struggle is, God has a purpose for your life. And that purpose begins with you knowing him. Accepting his gift of forgiveness, hearing his invitation of love, and making a decision to follow him. And that takes courage. It takes the courage of J.L., to say, I don't know how all of this is gonna turn out, but I'm gonna trust that God is at work. So you remember I told you about Molly. Uh, Molly followed God's call. She went to college, uh, and then her calling to ministry was invigorated there. She realized she needed to know more. She went to seminary, and she then went and served on a church staff. She was a minister of youth and a minister of young adults, and God began to reveal to her that she had gifts in teaching and she had a hunger to know more. So she went back to the seminary and she wanted to work on her PhD. And while she was working on her PhD, there was a little church out in Port Royal, Kentucky in the middle of nowhere. And that little church had 14 people and they couldn't find anybody to be their pastor. And so one Sunday in desperation, they called Molly and said, can you come preach? And Molly went and she preached. And she got invited back the next Sunday and she stayed and she did their funerals and did their weddings and baptized their children and visited the sick and did outreach visits in the community. She was willing to go where no one else was willing to go because she said, wherever you lead, I'll go. And when Molly finished her degree, the seminary invited her to join the faculty. That took a lot of courage. There were not many women on the faculty, especially in the School of Theology. But she did. And after teaching for about seven, eight years, she was awarded the Faculty Teaching Award for Excellence. 
In other words, she was the best teacher on the faculty. But that same year, a new president came to the seminary and fired Molly because she was a woman. And Molly needed a job, needed a place to live out her calling, so she sent out 68 applications and got turned down by every school. And finally, a little seminary on the verge of bankruptcy said, why don't you come and join our faculty and we will hope your paychecks won't bounce. And Molly sensed that's where Jesus wanted her to go, so she went. And when she got there, it was bad. I mean, the students were great, but the seminary was really dysfunctional. And after about a year, the president gave up and said, it's hopeless, and he left. And so the board of trustees faced this decision, do we close the seminary, do we try to keep it open? And they turned to Molly and they said, hey, Molly, will you be our president? Wherever he leads, I'll go. And Molly turned that school around, increased the student body, got him back on firm financial footing, and led that school for 15 years. And it all started in a youth camp when she said, well, we used to sing, wherever he leads, I'll go. And I thought that meant girls too. And so today, how about you? Will you go wherever he leads? Whether you're a man or a woman, a boy or a girl, wherever he leads, will you go? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for courage that you gave to Deborah and to JL and Barack and Molly and so many others of us. You give us courage, Father, to declare our loyalty first to you and to follow. And we don't know where you're gonna lead us, where we're gonna go. And I pray that wherever that is, you'll give us strength. And I wanna pray, Father, for anyone here who thinks that there's something about them that means they can't follow Jesus, whether it's something in their past, maybe even their gender. And I pray, God, that you would give them courage, especially those who need today to accept Jesus as Savior. God, help them take that next step. It's in his name I pray. Amen.